Hey there, it's Olivia Allen Price, host of Bay Curious, the podcast. KQED Podcasts wants to thank listeners like you whose support makes this podcast possible. If you want to help us continue to make great content, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. And thanks. From KQED. One of the biggest stories in hip-hop right now is set to play out in a courtroom later this year. Rapper Young Thug will appear in court this morning. The rapper, whose real name is Jeffrey Williams Jr., was arrested Monday on a 56-count racketeering indictment. Atlanta rapper Young Thug is on trial for charges that include conspiracy, assault, and participation in a criminal gang. And one of the key pieces of evidence is his music. Prosecutors reference several of Young Thug's songs in their indictment and will present some of his lyrics as evidence. Nine of Young Thug's songs are used as evidence, with lyrics such as, I never killed anybody, but I got something to do with that body. And I killed his man in front of his mama. I never killed anybody, but I got something to do with that body. The use of rap lyrics in criminal trials has increased dramatically since the late 2000s. But it dates back to the 1990s. And some people say it might have started in the San Francisco Bay Area during the trial of one of the region's most famous rappers, Mac Dre. Mac Dre is best known for pioneering hyphy, the hip-hop subgenre and cultural movement that thrust the Bay Area into the national spotlight. You can't go to a Golden State Warriors game without hearing his song Feelin' Myself blasted over a sea of dancing fans. But long before that, when Mac Dre was barely out of his teens and his career as a local rapper in Vallejo was just really starting to take off, he was sentenced to five years in prison for conspiracy to rob a bank. Many people believe it had little to do with what he'd done, but everything to do with his rap lyrics, because some of them took aim at the police. As part of That's My Word, KQED's year-long project on Bay Area hip-hop, we set out to discover what happened in the Mac Dre trial and dig into the history of lyrics on trial in California. And hey, just a heads up, this episode does contain some curse words. I'm Olivia Allen Price, and this is Bay Curious. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 
For decades, it's been widely believed that it was Mac Dre's music that put him on trial, and that his trial might have been the first time lyrics were used as evidence in a case. Reporter Jessica Carissa set out to learn more. The year is 1992, and Mac Dre's career couldn't be going any better. Mac Dre was a, a name that you would hear over and over again. It was big. Mac Dre was big. It was a big deal. He started doing shows all over California, up and down the state. He was becoming very popular. Before E-40 and Tupac would put the Bay on the map, Mac Dre was already a local celebrity. In 1989, when he was a senior at Hogan High High School in Vallejo, he got his big break at a school talent show, performing his debut single, Too Hard for the Radio. From there, his career took off. Within the span of three years, he released three popular EPs and was working on his debut album when suddenly everything came crashing down. On his way back to Vallejo from a trip to Fresno, Mac Dre and two of his friends were cruising on the highway when they suddenly got stopped by a swarm of police cars and helicopters. They were arrested and sent straight to Fresno County Jail. There had been a spate of bank robberies in Northern California, and police were convinced that Mac Dre and his friends were behind them. They charged his friends with attempted robbery and Dre with conspiracy to rob a bank in Fresno. The arrest was a big deal, and people close to Dre defended him on some major talk shows, pointing out that no bank was actually robbed in Fresno. Here's his producer, Kyrie, on the New World Video television show. So in order for a bank robbery to happen, it seems like the first thing that's got to happen is somebody's got to run into a bank and say, this is a hold up, everybody, nobody move, nobody get hurt. Nobody done that. So we don't even have a bank being robbed, no money taken at all. The police were surveilling Mac Dre and his friends the whole time they were in Fresno and claimed to have lots of evidence that they were planning to rob the bank. But friends and fans of Mac Dre were convinced that what was really driving the case was his music. So he writes a song called Punk Police, talking about the police and what he's been going through. Five or six days later, after he writes the song, the record comes out, Mac Dre gets arrested for attempted bank robbery in Fresno and conspiracy to rob a bank. In Punk Police, Mac Dre raps about how the police treat him and other black men in his community. He even calls out a detective by name. And I'm a dedicated case to Detective McGraw. You be steady accusing, but these cases you losing. You be steady abusing, maybe you find an abuser. Well, ha-ha, ha-ha. I'm a laugh in your face while you kick on back and feel the bass. After an eight-day trial, the jury finds Mac Dre and his two friends guilty. He gets five years of prison time. The story that's been told year after year is that the lyrics to Punk Police were used in the trial against Mac Dre, that they helped send him to prison. But I always found that strange because in Punk Police, Mac Dre is very clear about one thing. He's not a criminal. They say some banks was robbed and I fit the description, but that's drama. So save it for your mama. I'm not criminal-minded punk police. I'm a dope rhyme teller, not a money stiller. So what really happened? 
Was this a case of rap lyrics on trial, or was it something else? Mac Dre was killed in 2004, but the court transcripts from the case are kept at a federal archive center in San Bruno. So I went to see for myself. Hundreds of pages later, I found out that the case did not hinge on Mac Dre's music, but on two other pieces of evidence. One was surveillance. There was a wired informant hanging with Dre and his friends in Fresno, and the prosecution played a recording in court where everyone could hear Dre say, shoot out the surveillance cameras. The police also claimed to have found a gun connected to one of the bank robberies in Dre's apartment during a raid months before his arrest. The defense, however, argued that the informant's audio was so hard to hear that the comment could be out of context. Maybe it was a joke or a rap. And the defense pointed out that the gun was not registered to Dre, nor did it have any of his fingerprints on it. As for the music, the record shows Punk Police was played, and it was played by the prosecution. But not to establish Mac Dre's guilt in the robberies. They played it so the police could say on the record that they weren't retaliating against Dre because of the song. They called a police officer to the stand. This is a reenactment of his testimony. Was there and is there a campaign against Mr. Andre Hicks to prosecute him because of this song? No. Your Honor, I have no further questions. I spoke with a prosecutor for the case, and he confirmed what the court records show, that the rap song had little bearing on their case. I presented what I found in the court records to Ray Love, a rapper and one of Mac Dre's closest friends at the time. I think in most cases, that probably would not stick, except for when you're dealing with people who come from poverty and don't have a lot of the opportunities. If he was a white kid from Mill Valley, Marin County, he would not have gone to prison on that evidence. Rayla remains convinced that it was about Mac Dre's song, Punk Police. He was so sure, it made me feel like I was missing something big. So I went looking for someone even closer to the story. Mm-hmm. But these are some of my favorite ones. Mm-hmm. I think this was the album cover. Mac Dre's mother, Wanda Salvato, a.k.a. Mac Wanda, lives in a quiet cul-de-sac in Vallejo. And then this one came from an album cover, which is... According to how she tells it, to understand the trial, you need context. And for that, you need to go way back. Back to when Mac Dre was Andre Hicks, a funny, optimistic kid who loved to rap. kind of had the gift of gab, the gift of, you know, words and playing on words and stuff. I'd say around 15, 16, 17, he had always kind of, you know, wrote rhymes and raps and, you know, had his own microphone stuff. Like for Christmas, you know, that was stuff that he would ask for, a microphone, a keyboard. When he was in high school, he made some friends who also liked to rap. They were from a neighborhood in North Vallejo called the Country Club Crest or the Crest for short. We didn't live in the Crest, but he ended up going out to the Crest and hanging out in the Crest where they were. Dre and his friends got tight really quick, and he started spending a lot of time in the Crest. But it was a lot rougher than where he lived with his mother. It was a place where gang violence was common. 
Here's rapper Ray Love again. Remember, they were close friends at the time. Certain nights, you couldn't even really drive. Like, you better off walking to the store, because if you drive, you're getting jacked. And if you get jacked, they're going to rip the seats out that shit. You know, they're going to go extra hard on you. And they'll put that message out, tonight the streets is ours type of energy. Life was harder out there, and survival required some tough decisions. In the 80s and 90s, Northern California shifted from a manufacturing economy to a service economy. In the process, a lot of people lost good, stable jobs, and life became precarious. So you live in Vallejo, you live in Santa Rosa, that's the wine country. So you live in the ghetto in the middle of all of this wealth, but you don't get to participate. So drug dealing, prostitution, pimping, car thefts, jewelry store robberies, that became a thing. And most of the people that were doing it were in high school. They were kids. But they were kids that felt desperate, felt hopeless, felt like when I turn 18, what am I going to do? What is what is there? What is available for me? Some people were just doing whatever they needed to to survive. Mac Dre eventually got caught up in it all. His mom, Wanda, remembers it well. This is the era when the kids discovered that they could make money selling drugs, selling weed, selling crack and all that kind of stuff. He would go there in the Crescent, do it, and come home. My whole thing was, I'm going to work to provide, you know, there's really no need for you to sell weed. Uh, eventually, you know, I, I understood he was doing it because peer pressure, because that's what everybody else was doing. My whole message to him was, you don't need to do it. You don't need to do it. Whatever you need, you know, it's right here. Just do your music, write your raps, do what you need to do. But, you know, I lost that battle. Before he could graduate from high school, Dre ended up doing a stint in juvenile hall. When he got out, he doubled down on his music career, but the police had their eyes on him and his friends. The police, they have a tendency to once you've been targeted and once they know you, they follow you, they harass you, they watch you. Um, they were watching and harassing him and they, it was just constant. He was focused on his music, which I knew that was the case. But the, the problem is guilt by association, which he didn't understand. At the same time, a string of unsolved robberies in Vallejo were getting national attention. It even made it to the popular true crime show, Unsolved Mysteries. In the past six months, 29 restaurants in the Vallejo, California area have been robbed at gunpoint. The robberies escalated from restaurants to banks, and the police had their eye on a supposed gang called the Romper Room, and the person they believed to be their most prominent member, Mac Dre. But as Raylove tells me, the Romper Room was not what the police made it out to be. The Romper Room crew is a cir circle of friends. The folklore is that one, you know, one of the OGs saw, saw them running around and said, man, y'all ain't tough, y'all just like... Y'all just some the Romper Room kids, right? The Romper Room kids that the OGs were referring to came from a television show that ran from 1953 to 1994. They were named after a show for preschoolers. But it was really about friendship and, and loyalty. And the Romper Room is the first real supporters of Mac Dre. Dre got fed up with how often the police were stopping him and his friends. So one day in 1992, at 21 years old, 
he decided to do something about it. So he came home and he sat down and he said, Ma, I wrote this song. I wrote this song. I want you to hear it. And I think he had already gone in the studio and recorded it. So he came home and he brought a tape home for me to listen to. And the song, you know, Punk Police, Punk Police. And when I heard the song, I said to him, that song is going to be trouble. That song is going to bring you nothing but trouble. Do you realize what you're about to get yourself into? Oh, but it's the truth and I got to tell the story and, you know, fuck the police, punk police, blah, blah, blah. I think when punk police came out, everybody loved it. You know, it was our version of F the police and, you know, knowing what the police were doing in Vallejo and going up to the crest. I think most people could relate to it. David E. is a professor, radio host, and hip-hop historian based in Oakland. Rap was under fire at the time, so what's going on in hip-hop? The year before, you have Ice-T, you know, with Cop Killer, and you also have the Rodney King uprising. You've got to remember, all the stuff jumped off in 91, right? So it's a year before. So remember, in Punk Police, they're basically laughing at them. Police are like, no, we know. You all have something to do with this, and Mag Dre is like, no, you don't. After the song came out, Wanda noticed the effect immediately. My younger son, who was 11 years apart, you know, we'd be out, he'd be outside playing, you know, we'd be in the garage or whatever, doing whatever, and police would, uh, cars would just be cruising through. Wow. Cruising just to let us know, you know, they're watching. So there was a big shift from before the song came out and after the song came out. Oh yeah, because before the song came out, police didn't come here. Um, they didn't come in this neighborhood. There was really no reason to, but because of that, you know, that's when the real harassment really started. So back to the trial. It's months after Punk Police has come out and Wanda is sitting in the courtroom. She hears a police officer deny that they were retaliating against Mac Trey because of the song. Everybody knows that's a lie. The, the Vallejo Police Department, they were pissed. They were pissed and they let everybody know because this is, this is how we know. They continued to go out to the caress and harass and arrest and stop them for anything. And they would say to them something about that song. You know, they denied it in court and everything, but but they're the ones that told the, the kids this stuff. The jury deliberated for less than a day. When they came back, Mac Dre and his friends were found guilty. We were devastated. We figured Andre didn't rob any banks. We were convinced of that. We knew he didn't. Um, so there was no way. That, so we were really confident. And we thought, you know, it would all work out, but it didn't. One of the things was they were trying to get him to tell on everybody else, and he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't mention names. He wouldn't say who did what. You know, they tried to give him a deal. He wouldn't do it. He just refused to do it. He just said, I'll just do the time. And so, you know, he ended up doing the five years. To this day, I will say that it was it was a clap back from... from uh, the punk police song. Davey D, the hip-hop historian again. And the fact that Mag Dre basically laughed at them. He's kind of like, okay, we'll find something on you. 
we're going to find, there's going to be something you do. You're going to slip up and we're going to be there to catch you. He was the mouthpiece. And that's what they hated. He was he was the mouthpiece and he was taunting them publicly. You mm. know, and they had to solve the they had to solve the bank robberies. Mac Dre didn't let anything get in the way of his music. Even when he was awaiting trial in jail, he recorded music over the phone, becoming one of the first rappers to do so. He kept working on his rap career in prison. Wanda would visit him weekly. The way he looked at it is, okay, what am I going to do with this time? He rapped. So that was his thing, to entertain the inmates. So he took that opportunity, and he blew up in Lompoc as a rapper. And that kept him going. He was working on his business and rap career while he was in there and writing raps, writing, 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 writing. Mm -hmm. And so the day we picked him up when he came out, you know, he went straight to the studio, I think the same day or the day after, and started writing songs. Got in the studio immediately and started recording, recording, recording. Mac Dre came out of prison in 1996 after serving four years. He released 10 albums in less than 10 years and redefined Bay Area hip-hop. He introduced a style of party music known as hyphy that would become synonymous with the Bay and become popular across the country. Then, in 2004, while performing in Kansas City, he was killed in a drive-by shooting. Various reports have named different suspects, but the police investigation came up empty. No one was ever charged for his murder. Mac Dre's lyrics alone didn't convict him. And it's impossible to know for sure how much his music factored into how the police treated him. But his case is certainly one of the first where rap lyrics were used in criminal proceedings. And it contributed to the antagonistic relationship that exists between hip-hop and the criminal justice system. One where art, and most often the art of Black men, has been taken as an admission of guilt. We are staying on top of the story of popular rapper Young Thug and more than 20 others arrested on gang-related charges, some of them charged with murder and attempted robbery. California recently passed a law prohibiting the use of rap lyrics in criminal trials, becoming the first state to do so. Meanwhile, nationally, the practice is growing. Atlanta-based rapper Young Thug, one of the biggest rappers of his generation, is currently awaiting trial. And in this case, his lyrics will be used against him in the Georgia court. An 80-page indictment lays out several of the rapper's songs as evidence. Criminologist and professor Sharis Kubrin studies the use of rap lyrics in the courtroom. She says that since the early 90s, rap music has been used as evidence more frequently in criminal trials. Around the same time as Mac Dre's trial, Sacramento rapper X-Rated and Los Angeles rapper Snoop Dogg had their lyrics used against them in criminal cases. California is, I would consider, an epicenter where these cases take place. Sharis thinks it should be illegal to use someone's artistic expression in the court of law. She's conducted studies showing that the use of rap in particular tends to exploit existing biases. And what's happening in the minds of jurors, we think, 
are that folks are saying, gosh, if someone could write these kinds of lyrics, they could do these kinds of crimes. It's not a large jump. Now, nobody thinks that with other music genres, or nobody's thinking Quentin Tarantino is doing that with his violent films, or, you know, wrestlers are doing that as they're coming out in character saying, I'm going to do this and that to my opponent. But when it comes to rap music, it's much easier to make that leap. And that's because of stereotypes and biases that we have about young men of color who are primarily making the music that we're talking about here. As for Mac Dre, even in his absence, his legacy continues to grow. Every July 5th, people come together to celebrate his birthday, Mac Dre Day, in San Francisco. Here's Ray Love again. What makes Dre special to me is that when I was in high school, Mac Dre was famous. When my son was in high school, 20 plus years later, Mac Dre was was famous. Even today when we have the Mac Dre Day festivals, people come from all over, every walk of life, every race, every, every uh, even age group. We have people from 50 all the way down to 14. In the beginning, when his career was taken off, he was sent to jail. When he came home from jail and his career starts taking off, he ended up getting getting killed, you know? And that's a part of why I think everybody, we all toast him so much, is because the, the guy never really did too much wrong for what he received from this world, you know? He was a good guy. What it is. That was KQED's Jessica Carissa. Thanks to Gabe Baleen and Pendarvis Harshaw for their help on this story. It was produced in partnership with the California Report magazine, which is available wherever you listen to podcasts. The Bay Curious team is Amanda Font, Christopher Beal, and me, Olivia Allen Price. Katrina Schwartz was a contributing editor on this story. Ted Goldberg and Guy Maserati were the voice actors in the courtroom reenactment. To find more from KQED's year-long exploration of Bay Area hip-hop, visit bayareahiphop.com. Bay Curious is made in San Francisco at member-supported KQED. We'll see you next week. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.